32 counties. 32 questions. Um, Una Asanam Dom. <laughs> and my name is Andrea. And this is... United, United Ireland. Ireland. We usually take a county, dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. But in these extraordinary times, we're responding to issues emerging from life within a global pandemic. This week, how do you pull people out of an internet conspiracy rabbit hole? We'll be talking to a cult deprogrammer. Whoa, that sounds good. Um, We have a Patreon have we mentioned that before? And if we haven't, we should have because we are looking for you to pay us to make some content that you listen to. What an amazing Um, jingle. (laughs) Take that, Andrew. I'd say if we put a little bish bash behind it, I will be like smelly cat uh, Phoebe and friends. Um, No, I won't be. And clearly I'm not going to make my fortunes there. So maybe I could make my fortunes through Patreon and maybe not even my fortunes, maybe just a living wage of podcast making material. Well, that's a really, you can tell we're recording this late on a Friday afternoon and we're just rambling. So go on to Patreon and then you'll get a Sunday suit on Sunday because we do that for our patrons only because it's a little gift we give on a Sunday when you might have a little bit of anxiety creeping in ahead of the week to come and then suddenly this little present lands with a little Sunday soother to make you feel better. What more do you want in life? Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Thanks to our supporters and we look forward to welcoming you to the fam. Andrea, how are you feeling? I am in a constant state of discombobulation um, that will not reside and that I absolutely hate um, and that I am grasping for any elements of normality to come back to my life um, and then feeling guilty that I'm doing that because we're all ready for the new normal and where our lives will go. But I just want my life to be. How about you? I've had a weird uh, week. Um, so, Like kind of the same, I think think as you for the first time maybe we've synced up our oh my feelings God. well I feel I felt um really despondent actually uh, a, a, a good bit looking at what's happening in the states and talking to my friends over there um which just you know just seems terrifying um and then that kind of realization that you know the suppression of the virus and the or number lowering and all that kind of stuff you're like um you know we we did that and obviously, as as things emerge out of lockdown, uh, the infections will go up and how much they go up depends on how much people adhere to physical distancing and masks and all that kind of crack. And it just feels a bit relentless now with all the kind of different projections of it's not so much waves because it's not seasonal. It's It's just that it does feel very impractical to come out of lockdown totally without having to go back in. So thinking about those things. But then I got a reading a book that I will be mentioning in my fave bits later. And it's been kind of top of my pile for all of uh, this year, really. And I never dug into it and I started digging into it and I've nearly finished it now. And it's just really, really helped me uh, maintain optimism. So if you too want to 
get some optimism in your life and perspective and context and, you know, get out of the kind of weird discombobulated slump that we're in. Uh, stay tuned because I'll be mentioning it in my fave bits. But for now, it's the state of the nation. Andrea, what's going on? <laughs> I think it would be an understatement to say that it's been a busy news week in Ireland and around the world. Um God, where do you start? I suppose the most recent news flex is uh, the snoozing going on um, by Green Party members, uh, maybe leaders, in fact leaders, um, whilst voting down maternity payments, um, a living wage and workers' rights. Um, And it kind of was quite the uh, visual, I suppose, of, and I get it, like, there's a lot going on. You've been trying for your leadership to keep your leadership of your party, to get into government, to like run loads of shit. It's a busy time. Everyone's a bit stressed and tired. And I know I nap when I'm stressed. So maybe that's why he was napping. Um, but when this is Eamon, there, Ryan, Eamon Ryan asleep in the, the fake doll in the convention centre. But then when your party who have just gone in um, to a programme for government with Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, then go on to vote down maternity payments and a living wage and workers' rights. And Una doesn't feel very much about this, but also keeping cars out of the Phoenix Park. Um, (laughs) We have to wonder what's going on, what... It really gazumps all the optimism that whatever optimism there was about this program for government. But it's like, okay, so that's how it's going to go, is it? I miss the maternity payments thing. I know that the 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 thing being voted on was a sock damn thing around living wage, um, um, and it was for people who were on maternity during Corona would continue uh, to get maternity. Yes, they're extending it for three weeks or something like that. It doesn't seem much. Um, But you're right, Andrea. It has has been, it's not a good look. And it has been a remarkable week for um, the Real Housewives of Fianna Fáil, the drama, um, the drama-rama of... The Real Housewives of Fianna Fáil. I am unable. (laughs) But the soap opera um, of Fianna Fáil uh, is, I mean, it would be hilarious if it wasn't if we weren't in such a serious time but just this two and a half week absolute shit show beginning um that they've had where everybody's fighting everybody's jostling for power obviously the Barry Cowan saga uh which culminated in him um having the second shortest uh ministerial job in the history of the state and only the second shortest because the other guy was some lad who got his ministerial thing taken off him within the day when he was pictured with an maze prison escapee. So not exactly a high bar there, Baz. Um, but yeah, I mean, what did we expect? Fianna Fáil gonna Fianna Fáil. It's what they do. Scandal and drama and one-off housing. Uh, so yeah, and, the real and, housewives. And make Jack Chambers the chief whip. Yeah. Sorry, like I I can't even begin to get into that. Like just already the aggressive shit show he there was an article in the examiner, and um, it's been taken down since, but of him going into his first meetings and literally everyone going, 
uh, you've got an attitude, Jack. Oh, really? Surprise, surprise. So this absolute uh, person with a problem with anger management and attitude is now going to control um, the programs that land in front of the powers. Well, I think it's not so much anger management as just being a very poor... poor, <laughs> Andrea, so I'm sorry, I know we can't say that. Not take that asshole. back. Take that back. Um, it's a problem with um, communicating uh, and, and respect for yeah, women. Yeah, and I think Jack Chambers, I certainly from his like media appearances, communicates in a very bad way. Um, he comes off as quite arrogant, shouty, patronizing, um, bristling. Um, so whether those are good attributes when you're trying to whip an entire party that is currently tearing itself apart or whether they may in fact add to the discord. Uh, oh, Maybe t- that's what they need. That's what they need. <laughs> I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Circle of Friends, the clothes shop take her over from the dead dad that's Jack Chambers I need to go back and watch Circle of Friends but we wish Jack Chambers oh oh my <laughs> gremlins I think that was a Freudian slip there trying yeah. to stop me saying something you we, know? we wish Jack uh, all the best in his new role um, and may Fianna Fáil's may Fianna Fáil's success in government continue um, oh. something else that was really successful uh, this week for Team Ireland was that we oh. won. We won the Apple tax case. Take that, Europe. We're we're getting that that money. Oh no, we're not actually. Um, so congrats to Team Ireland uh, on that great win. Uh, really great performance, guys, and just really happy that we got to give that thirteen billion now one billion more because it's accrued interest back to Apple. Because if there's one company in the world that needs money and needs to be paying what amounts to 0.005% tax, it's Apple. So I'm very looking forward to bringing my own win for Ireland when I do my fat returns. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that we should set up a company called United Ireland and um, basically just pay that amount of tax. How do you feel about that? I feel great about it. I don't feel great about the amount of people who are getting up in your mentions, if you ever even mention this, and be like, uh, actually, they uh, employ this many people, so we get the VAT back. It's like, what you're literally creating a tax haven with rules for different rules for different people, and sh- the shoulder of the tax, corporation tax, goes to small businesses to carry. And it's like, okay, they may have like thousands of staff, but I've got 13. And it's all relevant to each person. So my uh, payments are equal to one person's payments in Apple. So, well, you know, my um, my my plan for that uh, with regards to the huge fears over losing 6000 jobs, uh, if we actually got the tax uh, back off Apple would be to um, take the 14 billion euro and give uh, 2,333,333 euro to each of the 6,000 Apple workers, which would add up to 14 billion euro. And then they could set up their own uh, phone and tablet companies. And we would be the um, the he- global headquarters of indigenous Irish uh, 
telephone and communication so- uh, hardware. That's my plan. Um, my other thoughts on this are like, we're so terrified of people leaving us. It's like we're in a, a one of those like relationships where you're, what are those relationships where you're, if you're locked in your basement, but you're like, oh, it's great though. Because Stockholm syndrome, codependent. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're in that relationship and it's like, we can't let them leave. Like, like really? Like, we- I think it's all down to a lack of imagination of Irish governments. Basically, it's like, you know, there's there's rarely ever a government that looks within uh, to find the answers. Instead, it's like, no, we need the Catholic Church. No, we need like um, FDI. No, we need like, all the, you know, multinational companies, all la la. It's like, why don't we actually try and do something um, for a change? I know that a tremendous amount of people here in this country are employed by um, foreign direct investment. There's one in seven or one in eight workers, something. <clears throat> which is obviously a lot, but this is not reliable uh, ultimately. And massive, massive multi-billion dollar making companies paying fuck all tax is not an ethical or fair situation. So anyway. And we're now on the top 10 list of tax havens in the world. Yeah. So another win for Team Ireland, uh, pulling on the green jersey, giving everyone a win. Fair play to all of the state's lawyers. Good job, lads. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. Uh, what else is going I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry, bitch, about that. It just gives me the rage. Give us the 14 oh billion gosh. quid. Anyway. Um, and it's not even about the, like, do you know what? It's not even about the money to me because, you know, I'm just so namaste. It's not ever about money. It's just about the different rails for different people because we're so afraid of being dumped. And you know what? Maybe we just need to be dumped and to rediscover where we're going because then... It will all just be better. Do you know what's totally. not going we, to be better? We could, we could be dumped and then we could go to Bali and uh, learn how to do yoga. We'd just be like <laughs> Ireland in Eat, Pray, Love. Eat, Pray, Love. Uh, and also, I would just like to say, I'm not against big companies. Big companies are grand, but they just shouldn't have different rules. Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, speaking of different friends. rules, speaking of different rules. Spe- Pubs aren't going to be allowed to reopen until the 10th of August, at least. I feel my like I feel so bad for pub owners and from a business sense, whatever about people who want to go for a pint. And like, if you want to go for a pint, you're going for a pint at this stage. But it's the business from the business aspect of the small businesses, again, being fucked over um, where they were due to open. They thought they were opening on Monday. And on the Wednesday before, I find, or it was a Thursday, finding out that all your like, kegs that you've ordered all the Guinness kegs will have to be replaced now all your staff that were due to come back can't come back um, and I know that we're on the um, basis of recommendations from MPET how do you pronounce that? Nefet never know I just saw, see all those acronyms um, but I know we have to do we do have to take that advice but it, maybe it should have been thought to do it a bit sooner and or to maybe uh, trust in the small businesses that they would put in the rules that were required and maybe not make them the scapegoat to tell everyone we're not out of this yet. I just feel it's so scab. Yeah, you know, things are really upside down when you're like agreeing with one of the Healy Rays, you know. Um, I think what the Healy Ray who was like, uh, you know, this is so ridiculous. Like, what's the difference between someone in a pub was there a little ice cream fan in the background? <laughs> it's a really good microphone, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, the difference between like holding a pint of Guinness and 
in one pub and holding a pint of Guinness and a cheese toasty in another one, you know, of course, the situation is ridiculous. The problem is the pubs that are pretending to be restaurants um, or, you know, and, and how that impacts, you know, other pubs, particularly much smaller pubs that don't have kitchens or any of that kind of stuff, um, particularly in rural areas. Like, you know, if you are going to open them, you kind of have to make it fair across the board or don't open any of them or do something like a lottery where a certain number get to open like two weeks on, two weeks off or something like that. But um, it is, you know, and and like, I mean, not to be like, I'm hearing stories, but like, you know, there are kind of people talking about, you know, kind of going out for a drink and, you know, having a bowl of chips between a bunch of people or staying much longer than the allotted time slot or that kind of stuff. So I just think it's kind of unfair. Either you do it or you don't. Um, and also, I think it's ironic that it's mainly the pubs that are big enough. And I get why yeah. the nine euro meal is there. It's for they can have space and table service and all that jazz. But like if those rules are implemented, small pubs are going to figure out how to adhere to those rules. But also the pubs that have those facilities are majoritively, is that a word, uh, Dublin based. Yeah. And the ones that... Um, and the highest rate of the virus is in Dublin. So it's like, yeah. that makes absolutely no sense. Let people play by the rules, make the rules, play by them and don't be assholes. And finally on that, if you're talking about saving the Irish pub, which is such an important um, cultural and, you know, I don't care about tourism really ultimately, even though like I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think tourism should be prioritised over other things, but it is so important for tourism. It is such a part of our culture you know, this is a, a thing that is so valued and cherished that it actually is, a you know, an entity that uh, of hospitality and, and entertainment and socialising that travels all around the world. If you're talking about saving the Irish pub and doing right by the Irish pub, you know, the, the average small traditional Irish pub doesn't have the facilities to be knocking out a meal or anything. So it does seem to be unfair. And uh, as I said, when our podcast is agreeing with a Healy Ray. I think it was, was it da- Danny, Michael, um, Johnny, <laughs> David, Eamon. Uh, but yeah, I, I do feel, I do feel for the pubs, um, especially places that have been getting ready. Anyway, we are now going to talk about something completely different, which we think uh, is fascinating. So one of the recurring conversations that myself and Andrea have off mic over the past couple of years is around how the internet radicalizes people, radicalizes people or pushes them in different directions that are uh, a bit sketchy. Um, And like how people become indoctrinated by their own particular echo chambers, um, you know, or just by watching YouTube all the time, like from men's rights movements, red pill stuff, conspiracy and how it's really hard to engage with people on this because it's like their minds are made up and they're totally closed off and you kind of trying to combat it uh, is almost impossible because people are just say, well, you would say that, would you? Or they have all these kind of, d- the design of conspiracy deflects any kind of logic often. Um, so we kind of look at the growth and visibility of the far right in Ireland, uh, some of it rooted in outright conspiracy and the spread of QAnon-related conspiracy, which we covered on the podcast recently. 
um, and just people spreading conspiracy on the social media and stuff like that. So it's kind of brought it to the fore again for us. Um, what do you think about that, Andrea? Like we we talk about this a lot, like how how people end up thinking uh, in a certain in certain ways, and then how you can kind of pull people away from that. You know, it's it's really hard. Um, I think it is something that I have been cognizant of for a long time because of like direct experiences with it um, and not being able to pull people away from it. But then I suppose now it's become almost like a hobby um, and so to the extent where people are listing it. I've seen it on Tinder profiles as like I'm into conspiracy theory is and this is my hop this is what I do um to even um conversations that I've been having with people about conspirituality which is huge um at the moment in terms of the spiritual world losing people who um are turning from being enlightened and loving and sharing their spiritual vibes to turning to conspirituality which is where they're really um, going down a conspiracy hole. So I think it's um, it's really, uh, like I was reading this Vice article and it was saying that conspiracy isn't growing, but it feels like it is getting really um, everywhere. And I don't know if that's because I'm tuned into it and I'm re- because I'm actually really afraid of it. And I think it, to me, I see the journey that America's been on um, as starting in conspiracy and people being like, oh yeah, I'm glad Trump is after being elected because that actually is going to shake things up. And it was based in conspiracy stuff. Whereas it feels like that's starting to sweep across Ireland now. Um, and I am terrified that we're going to follow the trajectory that is in the States and the rise of the far right as they are becoming more vocal and they are getting more people who are moderate um, in their policies and politics um, who are sharing so much of this stuff and uh, supporting these rallies and uh, things, even though they're being billed as one thing and then being taken up as another. I just think it's it's just terrifying. It's really taking up a lot of my mind. And then I'm like, oh God, I need to escape thinking about it because I'm even from my perspective, I'm not thinking of it in a conspiracy way. I'm thinking of it in an anti-conspiracy way. Um, but it just takes over a lot, I feel. I think it's like impossible to, de- like not impossible, but it can feel impossible to develop tactics to like talk people around and proactive tips to steer people in a different direction often seems quite lacking. And you can end up in these very frustrating conversations with people where they're like looking at you with this kind of like, knowing this as if you're the idiot who's just not like woken up yet to this thing and conspiracies are so juicy like there's it's easy to become fascinated by how wild certain conspiracies are then sharing stuff because it's mad and then actually amplifying it or maybe ending up kind of going oh maybe there is something in this because you know there's such a vast array you know Aoife Gallagher was on the pod recently talking about just the absolute array of um documentaries and websites and you know memes and stuff like that that just put all this mash stuff together and and you end up kind of coming out with all these kind of crazy conclusions 
So the problem, the scary thing is that it, a lot of the time it's based in kernels of truth. Yes. Yeah. So and when people then, talk about a global paedophile ring and you're like, that's absolutely ridiculous. And then they say, well, Jeffrey Epstein, you know, it's, it's very difficult to. Yeah. Um, so it's like, yes, that part is true, but all of the conclusions you're drawing, maybe not so. So mm. like we were talking about this for ages and we're just kind of thinking about, well, what other kinds of people know how to deal with stuff like this? And we started thinking about the more dramatic interventions that are made in people's lives in terms of indoctrination. Which brings us to our guest today, Rick Allen Ross, not Rick Ross, uh, the rapper. Um, Rick, Rick, Rick is a specialist in cults and in deprogramming. Um, and he has handled hundreds of deprogramming cases around the world. He was consulted by the FBI during the infamous Waco siege in 1987. He's the author of Cults Inside and Out, and he is the director of the Cult Education Institute. So we thought that he would be an interesting person to talk to about conspiracy and the rise of digital cults. So before we go on to him, what is the Waco siege? The Waco siege was a siege in Texas, in Waco, Texas, in the 80s, a kind of a hostage situation standoff um, with a bunch of people who were called, oh, something, their name was kind of unusual. It was like the Davidans. It was kind of like a weird religious sect. Um, And basically, um, there was a guy called David Koresh uh, who led um, this particular kind of religious sect. And uh, what happened was they kind of barricaded themselves into a property and uh, the authorities um, basically thought that they were kind of stockpiling weapons for some kind of mad thing. Um, so they kind of went there and tried to arrest them and it ended up in this massive standoff um, for like a month and a half or something, um, over 50 days anyway. And eventually the FBI kind of uh, broke into the property and uh, the place went on fire and 76 people, I think, died, um, including the person who was kind of purported to be one of the leaders, uh, David Koresh. And so it was basically a a kind of crossover between... uh, like religious sectism and a cultish type thing, barricade, hostage situation, and also this um, kind of um, quite American prepper type apocalyptic uh, weapon stockpile type situation. So um, it was much discussed afterwards in terms of the FBI's tactics and so on. So uh, that's what that was. Is that a good explanation? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about deprogramming. So Rick, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I began my work dealing with extremist groups, some called cults in 1982. A weird uh, fringe religious group Uh, infiltrated uh, covertly the paid professional staff of a nursing home where my grandmother lived. And as a result of that uh, situation, I became an activist, a community organizer, and later uh, began working for an educational bureau and a social service agency, uh, dealing with uh, very bizarre groups, uh, many that have been called cults. 
Mm. And what makes a person as an individual susceptible to cults, do you think? Well, I don't think there is any profile. There's been a great deal of research done trying to identify some kind of profile. And about the only consistent thread I could pull through uh, the many cases that I've dealt with, and I've done over 500 uh, cult interventions since the 80s, uh, the, the person may be going through a difficult time. Uh, they may feel depressed, lonely. Uh, that may be the result of a personal situation. Someone died in their family. Uh, they, a relationship broke up. They lost their job. They're not doing well in school. Uh, and because of that, they're more, more vulnerable than they would typically be. But, you know, this could happen to anybody at any time. And then a lot of times uh, with the people that introduce you to a group called a cult is someone you know. It could be a co-worker, uh, a romantic interest, a family member, and you trust them and they bring you in and what you see is deceptive. It's not what you're going to get in the long run. So mm. it's kind of a kind of a bait and switch con. Uh, I guess what I would say the takeaway is it could happen to you. It could happen to anybody given the right set of circumstances. And these groups can be quite predatory. Um, there's been a, quite a rise of it in a pop culture area in Ireland right now. And it's there is a lot of interest from people who may not be those disenfranchised people. Um, do you think there's a reason why it's spreading uh, outside of what we would consider, I suppose, someone in a bad situation or depressed, where it's just normal people living their lives getting sucked into these rabbit holes? Well, I think that right now we're living through a very difficult time. Uh, people have been on lockdown. Uh, the coronavirus is spreading. Uh, there's been increasing political polarization in various countries, uh, including the U.S. And so I think it's a time of confusion and people look for clarity. And a lot of these groups... Uh, that are very extreme, they give that clarity. They tell you, we have the answers. We know what's going on. And in chaotic times with confusion, uh, people are attracted to that. The idea that uh, someone has the answers and someone can give me a sense of certainty and safety. And that's what many of these groups do. They provide that. Hmm. In the last um, couple of years, um, QAnon uh, has emerged online as I think what we can kind of now start to broadly frame as the first digital cult, you know, subsuming different kind of conspiracies um, that that, you know, pop up online and, and creating almost an umbrella uh, it's a very weird entity. It's very nebulous, I suppose. Um, it covers loads of different kinds of, it touches on loads of different kinds of things around, like you're mentioning, you know, um, fringe political ideas, um, ex political extremism, and then, you know, a, a kind of desire for community or looking for answers kind of post crash and all that kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on it from your position of expertise as a phenomenon? Well, first of all, years ago, this is something that I predicted and many people thought I was nuts. I said there will come a time when there will be 
cults online that will work through social media platforms. They'll use um, uh, internet payment to get money from people. And people will not actually physically meet. Everything will be done online. And a number of people I remember told me that's ridiculous. It could never happen. And there, there actually were a number of groups that came before QAnon, but I think QAnon has become a group that everyone is becoming more and more familiar with because of the political environment. And I, I think that um, this is possible because of the world we live in where people can go online, they're searching for answers, they're literally searching through Google, and they find uh, through Google's algorithms, they may stumble onto a a YouTube channel, uh, a Facebook page, uh, some beginning thread that pulls them deeper and deeper into a group. And QAnon is an example of just such a group. How, do you think, I mean, I, I think the way it um, is very difficult to kind of combat because it's uh, the the tenets of its belief, let's say, are so outrageous that it's very difficult to combat it with logic and reason. This is something that I guess you've encountered in dealing with people in cults generally. It's not enough to, to point out that something isn't legitimate or real. That just doesn't seem to, to work as a tool. Well, look, I'm the founder and executive director of the Cult Education Institute, which is one of the largest databases of information about cults online. And the Institute has a Facebook page, a Twitter account, a YouTube channel, and it's trolled by people, people from QAnon, other other people that troll various uh, social media sites. And so I'm used to dealing with these kind of fanatical true believers that no matter what you say and no matter what links and facts you present them with, we'll, we'll just go through a process of what we call cognitive dissonance, which is first they believe whatever bizarre conspiracy theory QAnon puts out. And then even when it doesn't come to fruition and it it kind of fails, QAnon puts out a spin in which they rationalize what's happened and then interpret it. And if you're a QAnon follower and you're in the bubble and you're online and you're constantly at their sites uh, watching Uh, their YouTube videos, watching and following their comments and chat rooms or whatever, Uh, you're in in an echo chamber, you're in a bubble. And so we think it's outrageous when we look in the bubble and we see these bizarre conspiracy theories that don't make sense. But to the people that populate the bubble, they make perfect sense. And in their, in their view, our outside world is crazy. And theirs is the one that is ordered and makes sense to them. So like, what do you do if you notice one of your friends or family or a colleague or something starting to share like starter uh, conspiracy theories, I suppose, on their social media or starting to talk about it before they start really getting sucked into the rabbit hole? How do you... uh, stop them gravitating towards those areas? How do you pull them out before they get sucked in? Well, first of all, it's really tough because so many people get hooked 
uh, on these groups that are online and you and you as a family member, even as a parent uh, with a child in their bedroom online, you you do not know what people are are seeing online. You, you don't know. Uh, you may suspect as they begin to uh, kind of uh, bubble over with the, the verbiage and the kind of mantras and thought terminating cliches that are typical of groups like QAnon, where they basically shut down thinking with some glib, glib, you know, memorized uh, slogan or mantra. Uh, and once you realize that someone you care about is becoming consumed by this, uh, I think a, a good thing to do is do your research. First of all, don't be confrontational, don't be dismissive, don't be unduly negative, because they may go back to their their compatriots online, and they those folks may say, and this is typical of many of the people involved in QAnon, where they begin to cut off family, cut off friends, and become estranged. So what you want to do is keep that line of communication going, and then what you want to do is research. Um, my book, for example, Cults Inside Out, uh, is, is filled with research material about how groups uh, use intensive indoctrination techniques and coercive persuasion to subdue critical thinking. And it, the book also goes into how to cope in coping strategies with this kind of situation and how to do an intervention. So I think what people need to do is bone up, read, uh, do the research, understand what and who you're dealing with as much as possible before you decide what your approach, your strategy of response will be. Mm. And if um, so, like, I suppose the communication is key. And I think you're 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 so right there about not um, shouting people down. I mean, I, certainly we know with like, let's say when people are spreading something m- much more benign, um, but can still be quite dangerous, like, let's say Facebook or fake news in a WhatsApp group, you know, the, the, the tactic is always don't ridicule someone or shut them down, just kind of gently, I suppose, point them to, or alert them that maybe that's not true and point them to, towards the facts of it. Obviously when people construct their own belief system and really buy into it, the prospect of undoing that is, is an existential crisis. Really. You're basically saying that all of this stuff that you've bought into that you fervently believe is complete, you know, rubbish. Um, how do you, once somebody is, is kind of really in it, um, and we'll take QAnon again for an example, just because it is so wi- widespread globally, and they're sharing, you know, crazy stuff, crazy conspiracy, crazy Pizzagate stuff, drawing all these um, ludicrous conclusions uh, that are that are very inflammatory. Like, how do you go about pulling someone out of that rabbit hole? Like from your work in deep programming, how do you go about deprogramming someone who has who has fallen in uh, really deep? Well, it's a process of education. So what you do is, or what I have done, and I've worked in Ireland, by the way. I was hired by a family in Drogheda uh, years ago to uh, deprogram a medical doctor who was caught up in a group that was imported from the U.S. And uh, he was a father. He had four children. His wife became very distressed at what was going on and how it was affecting his professional life and his family life. And so I came in and what I did was I presented him with uh, 
the definition of a destructive cult, uh, that there was an all-powerful leader who became an object of worship, who could not be questioned in any way. Whatever the leader says is right is right. Whatever the leader says is wrong is wrong. And then I, I, I drew parallels with the leader of his group. And then subsequently, we talked about um, coercive persuasion, thought reform techniques, and we drew parallels between what was going on, the dynamics of his group in Drada, and and what we could see as a typical cult behavior in groups like uh, the People's Temple led by Jim Jones or the Waco Davidians led by David Koresh. And then the next thing we looked at was uh, the destructive nature of the group, how it had affected his life, his family life. And uh, that would be where a very good friend of his that his wife brought in, a college chum, longtime friend, would offer observations about how he had changed. And his wife would talk about how his relationship with his uh, fellow doctors had changed in his practice and how his life at home had changed. So, so what you uh, bring up to the person is, <coughs> what is a destructive authoritarian group and how might your group be similar to that? To what are the techniques of coercive persuasion to gain undue influence and how has the group possibly used that? And then next, also, you would discuss uh, what about this group do you not know that you should know to make a more informed decision about moving forward? And in the case with the doctor and Drada, there was a lot he didn't know about the early beginnings of this group uh, in the U.S. and the troubles that they had had there and and that uh it, they had had hurt a lot of families and hurt a lot of people, and and that there were many parallels with what his wife was concerned about uh, in Ireland, with what families had been concerned about in the U.S. So it's a process of discussion, of examination, and of correlation. That is correlating what this person is going through to what other cult victims have gone through in the past. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, people have said, if you kind of question what they're saying, that what if the um, antithesis to this is actually the psychological wa warfare of media? So what do you think mainstream culture and media have to do to prevent this becoming even more sp widespread? Well, I think mainstream media, for example, CNN, um, CBS News, Associated Press, whatever, they need to examine these things. Uh, they need to educate the public by um, doing news reports about groups like QAnon, disabusing people of the misinformation they spread. And I think social media, in particular, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, has a responsibility to the to the public and 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 to you know uh, to the welfare of people to police their platforms and and Facebook has been doing that uh, certainly they're looking at QAnon uh, YouTube has increasingly been doing that but I can't tell you how many hate groups and uh, just the most terrible kind of groups are using YouTube and using social media to pull people in and then using PayPal 
to extract money from people over and over again, because a lot of this is motivated by greed and and financial uh, goals. That is, the groups want to bleed people out financially. Well, you've been working in this area a long time. And one of the, the things about QAnon, I suppose, is that um, although it could be framed as, you know, conspiracy uh, you know, a conspiracy entry point that then turns into a belief system that is very difficult for people to then break that that causes people to kind of um, be cut off from their family members and loved ones. So those those kind of things are, are a cult like framework. Um, yet in terms of how we traditionally view cults, you know, that there is a place that people go, maybe, you know, a real life community or location that there is, you know, a singular charismatic leader uh, that is known. Um, you know, QAnon doesn't doesn't have that kind of structure, which maybe make it, makes it more powerful in a way. With regards to the kind of leadership aspect, uh, because the the leader in this is so either made up or anonymous, um, and the structure seems to be more about following ideas, following conspiracy. Where do you think from your own work that this is going to go? There doesn't seem to be very strong forces in society to stop misinformation. I mean, we even see it in, in kind of small instances of, of, of fake news stuff. Well, I think QAnon is not unique. Uh, it's a typical hodgepodge mishmash of conspiracy theories and beliefs that are not original, that were copied from other sources. For example, you know, George Soros, the Rothschilds, these kind of anti-Semitic themes of a global Jewish conspiracy and so on. Uh, this is uh, this is nothing new. This is, so what QAnon basically did was just uh, go through a lot of other conspiracy theories uh, and, and, and assemble them in a composite. And what we don't know is who is QAnon. Is QAnon a single individual? Is QAnon a collective of leaders? Uh, who is behind it all? Uh, but what we see is that it's malevolent, it's destructive, it hurts people, it causes rifts in relationships, family estrangements, and uh, to some extent, there seems to be a financial element. What would be your top tips to people who um, to stop the spread of conspiracy in society? Like, even if they have not come in contact with it yet, what can people do to halt its growth? Well, of course, the main thing is to be grounded in facts and to go and and this is the uh, the contradiction of the internet uh, and the online world is in one sense you can create a bubble uh, of of a chain of websites channels uh, you know social media uh, following certain people on Facebook, certain people on Twitter, where you can kind of insulate yourself from reality. But that same vehicle can liberate you. So if you do research and you, you investigate some of these claims, you can find out that they're false. And you can find out often that their premise is completely unfounded. Uh, but that takes a certain courage if, if you're feeling like you're drawn to it. To, to be able to look at both sides. And uh, I like to do that myself. I mean, here in, here in the U.S., uh, 
There is, uh, you know, the mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, etc. And then there is also a kind of more conservative brand of media, such as Fox News, uh, various AM talk shows, and and websites. And I like to look at both sides uh, and see what each side is saying. And I think that helps to inoculate you from being caught up in one extreme, is constantly balancing the information that you take in. Great advice there, Rick. Thanks so much for your insight there. Um, it's certainly something that that is rolling uh, in in a, in a worrying kind of way, but at the same time, I think that you're uh, offering some some good uh, tools, as you say, for the inoculation. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Getting in the sea this week is. Uh, my never-ending obsession with the Phoenix Park. Obviously, the OPW uh, have been making some good calls over the last couple of months in terms of keeping the periphery gates closed of what is the largest public amenity in the capital. However, uh, Patrick O'Donovan, Minister of State, Finnegaler, with authority over the OPW, basically reversed this overnight. And now all of the periphery roads have car traffic on them. The Green Party, who are in government, let's not forget, were aghast uh, on Twitter and on various radio programs. Yet the fact remains that this was just basically done um, with... Over their heads. Yeah, and with no acknowledgement of um, nothing taken into consideration bar, you know, in the minister's own words, um, the concerns of people in neighbouring areas of the park who you know, it was taking them a little bit longer to drive into town or whatever. There's some traffic. Um, it's really disheartening. And uh, I suppose more deeply, it's quite disheartening about, you know, the, the good things that were coming out of lockdown and the hope that we have that maybe like the world would be better and nicer and then this kind of stuff happens. So I am annoyed about it. Uh, I've been writing about it. I've been talking to various people, OPW, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I'll keep banging on about it, even though um, some people don't like when you point out these things. However, uh, the Phoenix Park reopening all gates to traffic on what were lovely, quiet roads for children to play and cycle and families to walk along can get in the sea. And for it to be a park. And for it to be a park. Get in the sea. But in more positive news, fave bits. Speaking of getting in the sea, I've been at it myself down at Sea Point, like a proper Southsider, jumping in the sea um, on Wednesday evening. Delightful uh, swim with two friends. Sea swimming is your maiden in Manhattan. Sea swimming is my maiden in Manhattan. You were so right. <laughs> so that, that was a fave bit, you know. Uh, my other fave bit, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, a book that has given, been giving me joy and optimism. It is, of course... Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. If you want to uh, just give yourself a bit of pep in your step and uh, help you along the way, think um, differently than the kind of narratives of darkness that we're fed. This is Hope in the Dark. It's a really short book and it looks at different kind of emerging movements and activism moments around the world that have been happening. Uh, published a good while ago, but extra relevant now. I know a lot of people are reading it, so... Uh, 
have a go of that. And my other fave bit is A Secret Love, uh, or as my girlfriend called it, the sad lesbian documentary. It is a sad lesbian documentary on Netflix, but it's also very sweet. It's about an older uh, lesbian couple and how oh, they yeah how they negotiate their their latter years. Of course, Ryan Murphy produced it because you can't have any gay program that Ryan Murphy is not involved in. He's like the Jeff Bezos of gay screen content. Wow. Um, but leave They're that aside. And um, Davina and Victoria interviewed the makers of this on ah. their podcast on oh, Petty amazing. Little Things. Yeah. I must listen to that. Um, yeah. Excellent. Uh, what are your fave bits, Andrea? My fave bits, I'm very behind the times on this one, but oh my God, I watched it last night. It was the most stun real film I've seen in a long time. Uh, Mamma Mia, the second or the return or whatever, the, the sequel with Cher in it. Jesus Christ, it is the campus thing you'll ever see um, outside of festival season. It was... like it was like a pantomime on a screen with like all these Hollywood actors and it was like what the fuck is going on in this and then Cher like just levitates onto the screen with not a muscle moving in her face um apart from her eyelids and her bottom lip and she's just fab and the image of Veda to be honest when she comes in first you're literally like is that Vader or is that Cher is it as um, good as burlesque as Cher films go which yeah. is one of my favourite Cher films now, the only thing is Cher doesn't come in until quite late in the film mm. but it is like at the start you're like nah this is absolute bullshit and it is bullshit let me let me lay it on the table it's absolute bullshit but it is so kitsch and so gas and like you can tell every single person in the cast was having a ball with it and if you let yourself have a ball with it it's absolutely gas and if you don't get annoyed by it because it's absolutely shit um but it is like there's one uh one line in it that I just cannot get over as much as I've tried um Christine Deboraski I can I'm so bad at names what's her name I don't know uh Brenda Nasky maybe oh okay, yeah. it. Uh, she's in it and at one point Andy Garcia gets out of the car to meet her and she's just staring at him and just out of nowhere she goes be still my beating vagina (laughs) 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 like that's the shit we're talking about it is (laughs) oh my god gas hook it into my veins yeah mamma mia go for it if you if you need like a little cheer have a bit of share um, and my other five bits was Fontaine's DC and Coming in Jail. Even yes. if you take out the band, which who are stunreal, and like it's not my type of music, but it was just so beautiful to watch the lighting, the setting, the it was so beautifully produced. Um, so big up to Courage, um, and the other voices crew. It was stunning. Yeah, That's amazing. I, I I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Re, I mean, I, I mean, they were one of my favourite acts, not even Irish acts, just generally I love the band. And you're so right. Like the production was gorgeous and it was just so, epic. just kind of mad. Yeah, it was epic. Yeah. Um, brill, brill. So uh, you know the score, I believe, by now. What is it? You're busy on the dance floor. <laughs> 
well, no. not for a while anyway. Uh, you can keep your distance still, keep washing your hands, keep your sneeze contained. And now it's mandatory from Monday to wear a mask everywhere in shops and blah, blah, blah. So just wear your mask. And I have to say, I am the queen of being out and masks are everywhere now. It's like an episode of Mass Crusaders working overtime, fighting crime, which is brilliant. So yeah, keep up the masks and like get a gorgeous. So it's a treat to put one on. I sweat to put my Natalie Coleman mask on um, because it's such a gorgeous look. So I'm delighted. Uh, not delighted. I'd prefer if we didn't have to wear a mask, but you know what I mean? Anyway. I wonder uh, what it's going to do to our collective consciousness where everyone is dressed as either a bandit or a doctor. Do you think now at the end of our podcast is when we should get into that? Maybe no, that probably we'll not. Take, we'll, t- we'll take that up uh, next week. But for now, here's a tuna chicken roll. <laughs> uh, this week's tuna chicken roll is like, I don't really have anything to say about it. It just is one. It's called Three Nights Dominic Fike. Uh, tuna chicken roll. I've been Una. I've been Andrea. That was How to Escape a Cult. <laughs> Something light and breezy for the weekend. And we are United, United Ireland. Ireland. <laughs> Call me what you want when you want if you want 